We all face the pressures of life. We live in a fallen world, and that means that we experience the effects of the sufferings of life and the trials that come our way. This world is not perfect, and we recognize that. And all those fears and anxieties that we experience get amplified, especially in a world of social media, which exposes us instantaneously to every horrible event happening in the world. And so that pressure of life can really get to us. And added to that, there's the hostility of a post-Christian world that sees our faith as dangerous, perhaps even bigoted. We fear for the well-being of our children and the pressures that they're going to face in a world hostile to Christ. And we know that we should turn to prayer in those moments. But so often we find ourselves so disoriented and confused that words fail us. And it's in those moments that we need to cling to the precious reality of Christ as our great high priest who intercedes for us. Robert Murray McShane once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. So our hope doesn't lie in the fact that we pray to Christ, at least primarily, but rather our hope is anchored in the fact that Christ prays for us as our great high priest. And that confidence actually opens up the door for us to approach the throne of grace in the midst of our trials and persecutions with confidence. The priesthood of Christ is the beginning of our prayer. This is Understanding Hebrews. The book of Hebrews emphasizes the superiority of Christ and the new covenant over the old covenant. So he's the royal son of David who's exalted above the angels. And he's the son of God who shares in God's divine nature. He is God in the flesh. Moses and the old covenant testify to the greater Jesus and his new covenant. Jesus brings a greater rest than Joshua gave to Israel when he brought them into the promised land. It's the very rest of fellowship with God and life in a new creation. And all of this is to show Christians tempted to go back to Judaism, that if you reject Christ, you are rejecting God. You are actually rejecting the claims of the Old Testament, which points forward to Christ. If you want to go back to Moses, Moses is just going to bounce you back to Jesus. And so in Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10, we see Jesus' supremacy over one of the central components of the old covenant system, the priesthood. So Hebrews is now aiming at such a core tenant of the old covenant to definitively say Jesus is better. So let's look at how this breaks down. Let's look at the first couple verses, 4, 14 to 16, in which we are encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews places a great emphasis on the contrast between the earthly and the heavenly. God created both the heavens and the earth as corresponding realms of creation. So Israel's religious structure of a high priest offering a bloody sacrifice on an altar in the most holy place of the temple or the tabernacle, which is what Moses was over, the temple came later, that reflects a heavenly reality, a heavenly temple with a heavenly altar before the heavenly throne of God. 
And so the earthly corresponds to a heavenly reality. And so Jesus Christ, the great high priest, enters into that heavenly temple, into that heavenly reality to offer his own blood as a heavenly sacrifice on the heavenly altar. And Hebrews will develop that further on in the book. But for now, the idea is that if you turn back to the old covenant earthly realities, you are choosing the earthly over the heavenly. You are choosing the reflection of an image over the person that is the actual image himself. You are choosing the shadow over the substance. You are choosing what is temporary over what is eternal. And so Jesus Christ, as the God-man, enters into the heavenly throne room, and he brings us up there with him as our great high priest. Therefore, we are to hold fast to our confession. What is that confession? It's that Jesus is the Son of God. He is our confession. Our confession is a person, a person to whom we cling. And that clinging is what's called faith. Now, the tricky part comes in with the claim that Jesus experienced temptation in every respect as we have, yet without sin. Now, that last part, yet without sin, shows that Jesus' experience of temptation differs from ours in significant ways. Theologians differentiate between what's called external and internal temptation. Denny Burke, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, explains the difference like this. Our experience of temptation can possibly have both external and internal aspects. The testing of temptation is external. Jesus faced such external testing just like we do. Satan set before Jesus temptations, but those temptations were external to his desires. Satan never laid a finger on Jesus's holy resolve to do all his father's holy will. Jesus experienced temptation in that external sense, but the temptations never had a place in his heart. Biblically speaking, that's the moral space between temptation and sin. The temptation is external to desire, but sin is conceived when desire fixes on evil. That's a great quote from Denny Burke. And really, what he's showing is that Satan brings an external temptation, something outside of ourselves, an opportunity to sin. But Jesus, who never experiences internal temptation because he lacks sinful desires, resists. So we experience both external, an opportunity to sin, and internal temptation, a desire to sin, as evidenced by James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So that external temptation plus our internal sinful desires constitutes our life as fallen people, as sinful people. But Jesus does not experience both of those. He only experiences the external kind of temptation. Now, to tease this out a little more, we have to expand what we think about when we think of temptation. We commonly think about temptation only with regard to resisting sin. But the main thrust of this particular passage is the temptation of testing, of being tried, of experiencing a challenge, the force of opposition, the force of fallenness in this world, meaning grief, hunger pangs, um, tiredness, fatigue, sorrow, not wanting to die, not wanting to be slandered. When you feel that tension in your life, that's a normal human desire. It's not sinful. Nobody wants to be killed or murdered or slandered or misrepresented or betrayed. All those things that Jesus experienced. That's that broader category of temptation, of being tried, is more what's in focus here. So Jesus, again, he felt all those things. He felt betrayal, grief, sadness, fatigue. 
he experienced people slandering him, hating him, persecuting him. And he's saying that for the sake of righteousness, he endures all these things. And he's saying to us, he understands what that's like. Remember, he's talking to Christians who have lost so much. They've lost their family connections. They've lost perhaps their livelihood. They've lost the respect of their community. And Jesus is saying, that's not foreign to me. I know what that's like, but I've also endured until the end. And if I endured, I promise to help you in your endurance with these external testing. So Jesus feels the cost of obedience the same way that we do, but he doesn't feel the pull towards sin the way that we do. And so the way that he sympathizes with us is in our weakness, in the fact that as human beings in a fallen world, we feel the pain of life. But he doesn't sympathize with the fact that we also desire sin and he doesn't desire sin. So there's a disconnect there. But the humility of Christ is demonstrated not just in that the Son took on human flesh, but he took on the kind of human flesh that lives in a fallen world, that he actually exposes himself as a human being to the injustice of life, to the bitter uh, harshness of reality. The Bible does not shy away from what the world is actually like, but he never gave in. In all of his experience of the external testings of grief, hunger, sorrow, and pain, it never turned him bitter toward God. It never turned him to sin against God. It never turned him to want to avoid the path of the cross. And he endured because of his perfect, sinless desire to fulfill God's will. And this resolve allows us to look to him for help because he not only identifies with our weakness, but he empowers us with his strength. We need his strength in our weakness. And that's why he invites us to, through him, enter the throne room of grace to find help when we need it. What a powerful statement. When we pray, that's our connection between our earthly life and the heavenly. To pray with confidence or more literally boldness of speech is to realize that Jesus Christ now represents us before the Father. It's the high priesthood of Christ. Prayer confesses sin with confidence because we know we're going to receive mercy. Prayer asks for help to endure trials because we know that he will give us the grace to endure those trials that we face. God promises mercy and grace right when we need it because we have this gracious, compassionate high priest who surpasses all of the earthly ones. So Jesus doesn't experience sin the way that we do. He doesn't experience sinful desire the way that we do, but he does experience life in a fallen world. He does experience the trials that come, the cost of following the Father, following the Word of God, of being obedient to the Scriptures. He knows what that's like. And because he knows what that's like, he doesn't look at us with condemnation. He doesn't want us to feel shame when we feel the weight and the cost of following him. When we feel the weight of suffering for the sake of righteousness, he looks upon us with eyes of compassion. It is natural to grieve loss. It is natural to feel abandoned and lonely when you're betrayed. It is natural to feel the harshness of the world. These are the ways in which the Son of God himself was tested, and he knows the way forward, and he knows the way through. And if we know that he knows that, we can come to him with full assurance of faith. He is the high priest who surpasses all earthly ones. And that's the next little section in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself. 
but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews lays out three characteristics of an earthly high priest. First, he functions as a representative who acts on behalf of men in relation to God by offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, in accordance with Leviticus 16, enters into the most holy place of the temple or the tabernacle to sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice on a golden lid that covers the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. He does it once a year. Second, the high priest is a man who's beset by weakness. He must offer sacrifice for himself first as a kind of cleansing agent before he can offer sacrifice for the people. The fact that he must receive cleansing for sin reveals his own sinfulness. So he's a sinful man. Third, he receives this appointment from God. In number 17, Moses places 12 staffs in the tabernacle with each one inscribed with the name of the tribe's chief. And the next day, Moses enters the tabernacle and he finds the staff of Levi with Aaron's name budding with blossoms and almonds. And this serves as a sign that God, not man, establishes the high priesthood. And he establishes it under the tribe of Levi and the line of Aaron. So Christ, just like Aaron, received his appointment from God, not his own self-will. Aaron didn't appoint himself high priest. He was appointed by God. And now we're going to see that God actually appointed Christ a high priest. It wasn't something he chose for himself. So here's the checklist, and we're going to see how Jesus not only fulfills the checklist, but he actually surpasses the checklist. It actually goes in reverse order through these three characteristics. So first, we see that Christ received a greater appointment from God as a greater priest. Hebrews cites two Old Testament verses, Psalm 2-7, which we've already seen quoted in Hebrews 1, and Psalm 110-4. Now, we know Psalm 2-7 connects the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the promise of a son of David inheriting the throne over all the nations. That's Psalm 2. But Christ's ascension served not only as him taking a heavenly throne, but also entering the heavenly temple as a great high priest. And this coheres with Psalm 110.4. What is Psalm 110 about? God calls his king to rule in righteousness with a scepter, and he is seated at the right hand of God, but he's also called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Fascinating moment. Christ ascends as both king and priest just as the Old Testament foreshadowed. Therefore, his appointment as high priest not only fulfills but exceeds that of the Old Covenant priesthood. So Hebrews connects the dots between Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 to show the full implications of Christ's sonship, the son that God raises at the resurrection, who's enthroned on high in Psalm 2, is also the king who is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when we get to chapter 7, we see how that comes together, because Melchizedek himself is both a king and a priest. And we see those two roles being molded together in a powerful way. So that is what it means to be Christ the Son. But also to be Christ the Son is to suffer, which is a surprising implication of his sonship. Let's look at verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we noticed that not only was Jesus appointed a high priest, which fulfills one of the qualifications, he was appointed by God, he can also sympathize with his people. Now, Aaron, the high priest, sympathized with the weakness of the people because he shared their sinful nature. So there's a difference here. Aaron sympathizes because he's a sinner. But Christ sympathizes in a different way. Christ never sinned. So how can he sympathize with us? Well, he, again, experiences human weakness, human frailty, without ever giving in to sin. Aaron sympathized with his people because he knows what it's like to desire sin. But Christ sympathizes in that he knows what it's like to suffer, to feel the weight of the world, as we discussed earlier. And he's actually strong for us, whereas Aaron was weak. That's what you actually want. Sometimes you think, well, a person can't really love me in my sin unless they know what it's like to sin the way that I do. And certainly, if you struggle with something similar to someone else, you can provide a kind of understanding that perhaps someone else can't. But Notice that even when someone else struggles with the same sin as you do, your love for them is limited by your own sinfulness. Maybe you start feeling better than them. Maybe you don't really want to get into it with them. Maybe you show a lack of love. Maybe you're still selfish in the love that you show them, so that your love toward them, even though you understand them, your love is still marred by sin. Now, Jesus, his love is not marred by sin. He can actually look at a sinner, not know what it's like to sin, but because his love is perfect, He can treat that sinner better than anyone else can. His love is not marred by selfishness. His desire to help us is not marred by his own self-interest. That because he's sinless, he actually has perfect compassion, love, and mercy toward those who sin. We often think that, again, you have to know exactly what it's like. You have to experience it in order to have perfect compassion. No, actually being sinless allows you to love with perfection those who are weak. Kent Hughes writes, what we and they needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner, not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory, not a sinner, but a savior. We don't just want somebody who can sympathize with us. We want somebody who can overcome the grave. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. Now, when do we see Jesus pray with loud cries and tears for God to save him from death? Well, there's a couple moments that we see that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the humanity of Jesus as our high priest on display. He trusts the Father's plan completely, and yet he cries all night. He feels the fear and the loneliness and the pain and the suffering that's going to come when he dies, but he never succumbs to it. It never turns him away from the will of the Father. He expresses the human desire to avoid suffering, but nevertheless, it doesn't derail him from his purpose. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He is completely submissive to the will of God, but he still feels the pressure and the pain of what it's going to cost him. That's perfectly normal. It is human to feel sorrow whenever you know you're going to be executed. It is human to feel shame whenever you are slandered. It is human to feel the weight of suffering. That's not sin. But it is sin when that derails you from the purpose to which God has called you. So Jesus leaves the garden with a resolve. He sets his face toward Jerusalem knowing he's going to die. He doesn't allow the weight of suffering, which is human to feel. 
to draw him away from obedience. And that's the model for us. We also see that he cried out on the cross for deliverance and God heard him. But how did he hear him? He didn't answer his prayer for deliverance by causing him to avoid death. He doesn't get him off the cross, but rather through the cross, he raises him from the grave. That's really important. We would think, and actually a lot of people who mocked Christ were saying, well, you're the son of God, get off the cross. If God really hears your cries, if you're really a righteous man, you won't have to go through the cross. And Jesus says, no, actually the plan is through the cross, I will defeat death forever. There's a greater thing God is doing. And the resurrection shows the whole world that Jesus is the righteous one. God is vindicating his son. He's saying, you guys thought he was crucified because he's shameful, because he is wicked, because he's a curse. No, no, he died on the cross so that I might raise him and show his glory, that the cross is the path to victory. That's what you guys do not understand. The Jews who rejected Christ saw his crucifixion as a curse, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. That's the curse for a robber, for a criminal. But Jesus' resurrection overturns that verdict and says, no, he's the blessed son of God. His suffering proves rather than disproves his sonship because God used it to mold him into the perfect high priest. And he gives himself as a sacrifice, not because he needed it. That's why it's so important that he's sinless. But why? Because we needed it. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. God tested his son. He brought trials to him to mold his character, not to take him from sinful to righteous, but to grow him perfectly in righteousness so that he might be our perfect high priest. And he gives his own life as a sacrifice unselfishly. God did not spare his own son from suffering, but through suffering perfected him. And he knows what it's like to feel the weight of suffering in a fallen world, but he never sinned. He was sinless, but he wasn't emotionless. You don't think that Jesus knows what it's like to be you in your trials? You don't think he looks upon us with compassion when we cry out to heaven? I mean, when we cry out to heaven, when we pray with loud cries and tears, we look up and who do we see? Our great high priest who has passed through the heavens looking back down on us with eyes of compassion and sympathy and love. Do you think he's going to abandon you in your darkness when you are in the garden praying and weeping? No, he experienced that. How could he ever abandon you? He is our great high priest appointed by God from a greater line, a greater priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He is the son, the king and priest who reigns forever as our advocate. And he bids us by grace to come with confidence to the throne of God. That is a great privilege. So if you want to apply this passage, what is it that you are facing? What are the temptations and trials in your life? The external factors that are weighing you down, that make you want to quit. What is the solution? You go with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing that your high priest hears you, he cares, and he will act on your behalf.